by ultimately aligning those interests and by coming together around one shared goal with our partners, which is, you know, at the end, it's, it's delivering great student outcomes. Not only are we improving lives, but we're transforming the future of higher education for the better. And I know that's a bold statement, but it's true. And we are living it and we are delivering on that. And the nice thing about where we sit today, Paul, is, you know, if we did this interview, you know, six, seven years ago, I wouldn't be able to say that. We wouldn't have enough data. We wouldn't have enough experience. And, you know, today we do. And I think that's what's most important. Welcome to Think Bigger, Think Better, where we explore how you can apply insights from visionary leaders and the most provocative philosophers and scientists of our time to make your life and our world a better place. Here's your host, author and speaker, Paul Gibbons. Hey, and welcome back, Think Bigger, Think Better fans. Welcome to today's show. We are going to have Andrew Hermelin, who is the 30-year-old president of an ed tech company called 2U. We're going to talk about online education, the future of university education, and how 2U is improving access to education around the world through partnering with universities, sometimes the best universities in the world, to deliver degree courses on its platform. Before that, I hope you listened to our podcast on AI last week from IBM's Jesus Mantas, a critical topic for business leaders and for citizens to understand better. Before that, I talked to Lenore Skenazy about free-range parenting, what that means, and her worries about over-supervising our kids. Coming up, I have the Minister for Climate Change from New Zealand, the Right Honorable James Shaw, who happens to be a buddy of mine and former business partner. And I also have coming up an expert on the North American marijuana industry, Alex Romero, coming on. I'm interviewing him right after I record this. So I hope you find that lineup as exciting and interesting as I do. Let me know in the comments on my website or on my Facebook page how the show's doing and how it could be improved. You can support the podcast through monthly contributions through Patreon, two bucks an episode or five bucks an episode, or non-financially, just by liking, subscribing, rating the podcast, sharing it with your friends if you love it. So thank you for your historical support, and thanks for listening today. And so now, on with today's show. The university system faces immense challenges. In my view, education mostly looks exactly as it did in Oxford 500 years ago. A bunch of young people sitting in a room listening to an old person talk. You can see on my website, on the show notes, an image of Balliol College, Oxford, which was founded in 1263. Some of the challenges university faces are skyrocketing costs, and we've heard a lot about those, and those have many implications, but not least of which is that students can sometimes leave with six figures in debt. I think when I got married, I married into $200,000 of student loans. Unequal access to education, not just for the poor, not just for the working class, but in rural areas, but also for people who want a vocational education. We don't serve that population nearly as well as we ought to, and also, and obviously, in the developing world. Universities struggle to keep up with the times in a world that's changing as quickly as ours is. Preparing students for the decades to come with an education today is extremely challenging. And since we innovate as quickly as we do in business and in other areas, universities struggle to keep themselves relevant. We have a tenure system in universities that makes them the most change-resistant and encourages, in my view, mediocrity and kills innovation. I've worked in a lot of universities and there's a lot of mediocrity, uh, partly because with the tenure system, market forces really can't force out people very easily 
who, you know, perhaps are, have their best days behind them. And there are reasons for it, but I don't think those balance or counterweigh the conservatism that the tenure system brings into the university system. Universities face threats from cost cutting because they're expensive institutions, particularly those perhaps on the right who see universities as bastions of left-wing ideas. But cutting costs in universities and, and eviscerating a university system effectively short sells your country's future. You know, on a funny, on a personal note, I attended the University of Wisconsin. I'm deeply proud to have done so. And for a state that only has a few million people in the middle of rural America, it manages to be one of the top 10 in the world in many, many areas. For example, stem cells. Probably the only thing in Wisconsin that is truly world-class except for the Packers. Yet the governor, uh, I think he's now in his 10th year, Scott Walker, is been merciless in his attempts to destroy the institution that attracts brains and capital to the center of the United States from around the world. It's an extraordinary thing and sad thing to witness. So I say all this as some sort of harsh critique, but universities are my favorite places in the world. My dad was a professor. I grew up on university campuses. I spent, you know, when most kids were out throwing a ball around, I'd be on the university campus doing one thing or another from a very, very young age. I love uh, the libraries. I love the campuses. They're very beautiful. Uh, I love the young people scurrying about. And for me, scholarship and lifelong education are two of my highest values. But we can't really have 21st century institutions that look and function a lot like 13th century institutions, at least not in my not so humble view. So who have we got today? We've got two you. What are two you trying to do? Well, two you is an ed tech company that brings universities into the digital age. Their platform provides a digital infrastructure that universities need, so they don't have to build it themselves, to attract, enroll, educate, and support their students at scale while delivering similar or even higher sometimes quality educational outcomes. With the 2U platform, students can pursue their education anytime, anywhere, without quitting their jobs or moving, and university clients can improve educational outcome, building of skills, and the careers prospects from students who wouldn't normally get access to education. So one of the problems, of course, I mentioned earlier was access, and that's certainly a fight that 2U is trying to win for us. And who's my guest? Andrew Hermelin. From his bio, he's the president of 2U. He has global responsibility for their partner growth and relationship management. He has a team of 800 people who are skilled in experiential learning and enrollment services, curriculum design, program management, and in building partnerships with universities. As a member of the leadership team, he reports to the CEO and got his start with the company when it was just founded in 2008. He was their founding intern 10 years ago. He's only 30 years old. He's previously served as an executive vice president for strategic partnerships and is responsible for many of the university's partnerships around the world. Andrew's dedication to expanding access and opportunity education earned him recognition on Forbes magazine's 2017 list of 30 under 30 in education. He's from New Jersey, and he graduated from Lehigh University. Andrew, welcome to Think Bigger, Think Better. Thanks, Paul. Happy to be here. I heard something weird about you. I don't, I don't know if you mind if I ask you about that. I heard you started your business career at something like eight years old. Is that right? About <laughs> nine years old. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what was that about? Uh, you know, so at the, the age of nine, I knew I wanted to be a CEO when I grew up. And so I, part of it was going to work with my grandfather, who's the CEO of a small defense contracting business, and decided to begin writing letters to CEOs of the biggest companies I can think of, asking them for a signed business card. And it was uh, sort of clearly a unique hobby 
but was pretty incredible because I had almost all of them respond with uh, nice notes and uh, signed business cards. And it's created uh, not only a really cool collection of business cards, but over the years, a strong group of mentors and, and friends who have helped guide me through you know my career thus far. That's amazing. That's really cool. Well, let me ask you this. How can we encourage more people, more teenagers, more young people to, to take risks and to start stuff in our culture? What can we do about that? There's a mantra I have, which is, you know, don't be afraid to ask, you know, and I think that's part of, we just have to reinforce that. I, I find that, you know, a lot of folks are afraid to go after things that they want or afraid to talk to people or afraid to, you know, outreach because of, you know, response they might get, which is, which is a negative one. The reality is it's better to ask than, than not. And so I think one of the things that I did as a kid was, I wasn't afraid. I wasn't afraid to get a no or to not get a response. But in the cases where I did, it was pretty cool and and helped sort of propel me to where I am today. So I think it's really empowerment, right? I think it's, you know, helping individuals realize at, you know, as early an age as possible, their full potential and making sure that they think big. Yeah, that's right. And that, and that, you know, but I mean, you know, no is a big word to a nine-year-old. I mean, uh, that's true. I mean, you know, I, 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 there's something there. There's something. There is something special in your DNA. You're destined to run a company, and here you are, president of of two. You you started a company in your teens, also, didn't you? You started something up. I was. I was an undergraduate at Lehigh University at the time uh, at which two you started, and my claim here is I am the company's founding intern. And you know, fast forward ten and a half years, am now uh, our president, responsible for our university partnerships and our and our programs and our growth. Cool. Do you know, it's funny, uh, since the 1970s, since the first network computers, people have talked about online education as being a new dawn. And there have been so many false dawns. So many times I've heard, oh, it's going to replace the university, it's going to replace high school, it's, you know, all of that. And we've heard that so often. And along comes companies like yours, Platform Company, along comes Coursera, along comes edX, along comes HBX, and all of these companies. What's different now, I suppose, is the question. And is this a new sort of future for tertiary education? Where are we now? Yeah, you know, I, I think more and more, right, nonprofit universities are going to adapt and come online. There's no question about that. Data is going to be used increasingly to help drive things like student retention and high quality, you know, student faculty experiences and outcomes, I think, more broadly. I think where we are is, think about curriculum, right? Curriculum will align more with economic demand, right, and lifelong learning than ever before, right? It's looking at where there are pockets of demand out there, creating new programs for specific demands and so forth. And I think like us at 2U, you know, education technology companies and the universities that we support will be held more accountable to both students and, and graduates. So I think where it's come over the last 10 and a half years since 2U has been around and the way in which the space has transformed has been both fast and entering new territory. And I think, you know, from where we go, it's just going to continue to rapidly increase and move faster and more and more, you know, universities are going to be doing it. I don't doubt that's the case. I mean, I don't know whether it's sustainable as kids can continue to leave university with six figures in debt. And I don't think the, the fact that university costs have skyrocketed decade after decade, and all we ever see is, is hand-wringing of one kind or another. It's like, what are we going to do about this? But no one ever does anything about it, as far as I can tell. Let me ask you this. You're uh, would it be right to call you a platform company? And and if you are, like for listeners, what's a platform company? What does that mean you you do with your partners? 
Yeah, you know, so I guess starting with who we are, right, and what to you is. But for over a decade, we've been a trusted brand steward and the partner of choice to, you know, really the world's top universities. And, you know, what I would say is navigating the complexities of bringing the best of themselves into the digital age. At the foundation right. of and our what's model. A, what's a brand? Let me ask you, stop, stop you for a second. What's a brand steward? That's a word that listeners may not know. We, you know, when we think about ourselves being brand stewards of the universities, it is, we are helping shepherd the university and its name and its reputation and really truly bringing them global, you know, sort of outside of their geographic bounds from where they are in attracting not just any student, but the right student. And in all our cases, a super high quality student, right? So it's, it's really the extension. It's, it's sort of brand extension in sort of the digital age in many ways. Okay, cool. Sorry, thanks for that. No problem. And I think, you know, at the foundation of our model is a genuine respect for what makes a university great. It's, you know, a strong and independent faculty, a commitment to academic rigor, you know, and, and obviously the critical interplay among students and faculty that comes from the intimacy of a live classroom. And what sets us apart are all of, of those pieces. I mean, we believe the best online education must be grounded in these core values. And it's a reason why 2U partners have always maintained control over the accreditation process and the curriculum and hiring and admission and so forth and so on. So I don't think of us as purely a platform company because we're also constantly making investments to improve the overall bundle of our services that we offer to continue to enhance and make our university partners and, and clearly the students successful. Good, 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 good. So all of your education, to make it clearer for, for listeners, it will have an online component, which students can be doing, you know, 10 p.m. at night when they're watching Netflix or 6 a.m. in the morning or on weekends, and they can be doing it from any place on the globe. And then part of it is face-to-face, well, not face-to-face, <laughs> digital face-to-face interactions with a professor. Is that what they call a, a flipped classroom? Is that the sort of the teaching model, the pedagogical model that people use? It is. I mean, it's a piece of it. You know, for us, it's what we're doing is we're creating digital learning experiences, right? That allow our partners to deliver up close and personal education for every student, right? So you may see for us, we have a hashtag no back row. We yep. all know the back row, right? The seats closest to the exits, a refuge for minds that wander, right? Home of the unraised hand, right? That is our marketing copy, but we believe in that. And so the notion of having, you know, incredibly high quality asynchronous content to your point that is self-paced, but coupling that with a live, intimate sort of class experience with students all face-to-face with a faculty member discussing that week's async content is hugely powerful. And one of the things we hear pretty commonly in our partner programs is both from students and faculty that the experience is intimate. That is not a word you hear used most often with respect to online education. Do you know, it's funny, I teach for you guys indirectly, right? I teach for the University of Denver and uh, I teach class business ethics and leadership. been doing that for a year and so there'll be eight to 20 students in a, in a class. We have a blast. And, you know, it almost feels more intimate to me that I'll tell you why there's no back row. I mean, the way they look at the screen is I can see them. They're all 18 inches from my nose. And I, <laughs> and I likewise. But I don't know. It feels very up close and personal. And we have a great time. And also the, the flipped classroom model means that, you know, 
And I was always told I had to read the material before lectures. I never did. Uh, but they actually have to read the material before lectures. They have to come in before they work with me and they have to demonstrate that they've read, understood, can think critically about the thing. And so we focus on taking what they've read and taking that a great deal deeper. So I think the experience, uh, you know, we'd have to ask the student. I think the experience is actually superior to traditional bricks and mortar learning that university have looked the same since the 1500s, right? I mean, you know, if you look at a university classroom in the 1500s, Oxford University, it looked sure. the same as it did in 1950, right? Just 500 years. <laughs> so now I, I, I do think it's superior. I do think it's bringing education into the 21st century. I suppose I'm preaching to the choir with you there. No, that's great. But, and, and, and I appreciate your viewpoint. And as I'm sure you know, you're not, you're not alone in, you know, faculty feeling like it's actually more intimate than the classroom experience. And as I said, I mean, that's, that's incredibly powerful. Yes, yes. So, so what are the benefits for universities? So why would universities bother? I mean, I've heard in the past universities are worried about cannibalization, that you'll just take students away from their very high priced bricks and mortar classes, that you'll be stealing faculty IP, you know, that they preciously, because it's all going, much of it's going online. I mean, how are universities reacting to this as an opportunity and, you know, sometimes as a threat? What's, what's going on there? Yeah, I, you know, I think we should talk maybe more macro for a second. So within the OPM space, right, online yep. program managers, right, which is the space that we are sort of in, you know, we talk about two different approaches, horizontal and vertical. So I'd say the horizontal approach is what nearly every other player in the market does. It's they are aggregating as many degrees and programs as possible into a large portfolio without investing much in each. Right. So the net negative cash for a Wiley or Pearson program might be something like a couple hundred thousand dollars. Right. The growth strategy in a horizontal approach centers around the number of programs, not the size of each program. The vertical approach is what 2U does. We go really deep into individual programs and grow them. It's all about sort of quality at scale. So the average net negative cash for our programs is about eight million dollars. And so generally speaking, nobody is in the vertical game with us. We expect others to try to compete, but they'll need a lot of cash and alignment with their investors in order to do so. And those that say they are playing the same game, simply put, are not. It's all less for less, right? Less investment, less within their bundle and less scale. And so when we come, it's not just about choosing any program. It's choosing the right program. It's choosing a program that you know we can partner with an institution on. And it's about finding the right partner, right? So choosing the wrong program, Paul, is one piece of it. But more importantly, it's can we find the right leadership and faculty who have a willingness to lead change, right? Who have an entrepreneurial spirit, right? Who are, who are you know, not afraid to take risk and really think about, again, sort of both scale and quality and, you know, reputational enhancement and just overall educational quality enhancement, right? Because as you know, you have experience in our platform, one of the things is repurposing content for on-campus use, right? So, you know, to you does not own the intellectual property. Faculty members are repurposing content in any ways that they'd like. And so in terms of the overall reception, it's we have to find the right faculty and leadership. We have to jointly believe that we can build something that's not just as good, but better than on campus recruit and find the right student, not just any student who meet, you know, in our partner cases, you know, Berkeley, Georgetown, you know, spec, 
right? And deliver an exceptional experience for them where we can generate strong outcomes at the end, where, right, retention rates are equal to or better to than on campus. I think what we have found is the resistance is, you know, when it comes to things like, what will this take for our faculty, right? What's the time commitment? What are the things that they are not doing on campus as a result of either developing a course or teaching online? Uh, What does this do for the reputation of the school, right? The notion of cannibalization for us, you know, across our partner base, it's not the case. These programs, because you're investing such a large amount of dollars into the marketing of the program and therefore the marketing of the school and the university, you're actually driving a larger interest to the on-campus programs, right? As a result. Wow. Okay. That's the opposite of cannibalization. That's right. That's exactly right. And you have to do it thoughtfully and you have to do it strategically, right? So the interest of alignment here between us as a partner with the university is critical. Yeah. And so you help them doing something that universities are pretty crap at, right? I mean, historically, I mean, universities haven't been great at marketing. It's a highly competitive marketplace. And so uh, you're you're actually become a marketing partner for them, a brand steward and a marketing partner. So you're helping with enrollment. So it's not that you're taking students away from their bricks and mortar. You're getting them students to which they wouldn't normally have access. That's exactly right, right? Outside of their geographic bounds, right? And yes, you're right. I mean, historically, and even today, I mean, great universities generally do not need to think about marketing because at the undergrad level specifically, they're not worried about not having students apply each year, right? Yeah, and it's interesting. So you can give them access to students in Singapore, students in Uganda. You can give them access to students who have lifestyle constraints that wouldn't permit bricks and mortars. So you're really opening a huge door for them. That is cool, cool, cool. So you've said what you look for in universities, you know, the importance of leadership and administrative skills in universities and passion for getting this done and leading change. What do you look for in your talent pool? I mean, I've had the pleasure of teaching about 10 of your employees in my MBA class. They're a pretty spectacular bunch, I have to say. So uh, where are you finding them and what do you look for? TU is currently experiencing hyper growth, which makes our culture invaluable. It's something that our CEO, my boss, Chip Pausek, and our exec team are passionate about keeping alive as we you know, shed our startup skin and develop our own public company persona. You know, We, we maintain our culture by you know, infusing it into our mission and everything that we do. And whether it be our guiding principles, our website, our, our office layout, you know, our open office layout uh, and design, our our hiring guidelines, you know, we have to remain committed to incorporating our unique company identity into each aspect of 2U. So for us, I guess I would start in terms of the talent and the recruitment piece is our core sort of culture values are outlined in what we call our our nine guiding principles, which do a great job of highlighting our, our culture of excellence, innovation, and fun. And those nine are Cherish each opportunity, give a damn, strive for excellence, be bold and fearless, be candid, open and honest, have fun, make service your mission, don't let the skeptic win, and relationships matter. And I think, you know, it goes without saying that another important piece of this is you can't lose sight of that. You can't lose sight of that core in this sort of hyper growth mode. It's easy to you know, move fast and and hire folks because you need them to start, you need people in those roles, but that's a short-term game, right? That doesn't work long-term. You have to be patient in finding the right people. And you also have to be respectful of the fact that these individuals, yes, they're employees of 2U, 
but I'll go back to it. We are brand stewards of some of the oldest university brands in the world. <laughs> right. O- Oxford, Cambridge, uh, University of Witzwaterland, Berkeley, right. Georgetown, yada, yada. That's a, good, that's a good strong, yeah, they're big brands. That's right. I mean, so these brands are older than Coca-Cola. Right. And yeah, Walt like, Disney. Like 500 years older than Coca-Cola. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I see that. So, but you know, there's a sort of paradox there. So you're in hyper growth mode and typically, and you've got to hire, hire, hire to deliver. But then you also say, talk about being patient and quality. And I'm not, you know, I've experienced your guys a pretty high quality bunch. I mean, it's an easier thing to say than it is to do. So how do you, on those culture, your nine principles, for example, how do new employees learn those, not in such a way as they could recite them because who cares, Sure, but actually because they embo- how, they, how do they embody them? It's a great question. Our, I really believe our employees, our employees believe in the power and the promise of, of education. They're hired for their talent, but you know, Paul, I'd say more importantly, they're hired for their cultural match. And for us, so long as we have employees who have passion, we believe we can teach the skill set. You know, my belief culture is intentional, it's purposeful, it's not just words to your point on a lanyard to us, right? Which which have our nine principles. All employees have to really believe in it and go for it, you know, for us to be successful. So we won't always get strikes, but a great culture will prevent the, you know, the gutter balls, right? Right. Right, 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 right. Oh, uh, that's interesting. So you hire for cultural fit and you say we are, if we get someone who's talented enough and who's a good enough fit for our culture, we'll be able to teach them what they need to know. That's right. That's right. Right, right, right. Good. And I know you invest heavily because I know that there are, I mean, I've met a dozen of your students in my classes. So I know you invest heavily in developing the talent that you have through the MBA that I teach and presumably through other programs as well. So you invest heavily in talent development. We absolutely do. I mean, one of the greatest benefits that we offer our employee base is tuition, full coverage on tuition for any of our 2U powered programs. And as you can imagine, I mean, education is a incredibly important and powerful tool for someone to have. It's a hundred grand worth of immediate value and, and lifetime value. It's like a million. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So that's a pretty sweet deal. So uh, where do you find these uh, special, special people? I mean, how are you out there hunting them down? That's a, that's the question. We have an incredible, uh, you know, people organization recruiting team that are both doing, you know, what I'd say the sort of hunting, but also the nurturing, right? It's, and, you know, I have to tell you, I mean, some of our best hires come from referrals, right? We have a strong referral program where folks are bringing in others from outside companies that they had been with, you know, and we also have done a great job from a talent development perspective in, you know, training our employees once they're here, right? So that we can you know, give them growth and promotion opportunity within. So, you know, there are a bunch of, you know, your, I'd say standard channels that you're going to go after to find folks, whether it be, you know, any of the job sites or, you know, using LinkedIn and Facebook and other places, but it's really the purposeful sort of outreach versus the, let's just go post a bunch of ads and, you know, see what talent we get. Yeah. That us the, you know, the, the stronger candidates for yep, sure. Yep, yep, yep. So um, let me let's circle back to the industry. So in higher education, some of the problems strategically are, are cost. One of the problems is obviously access. And one of the other problems is usability of skills. As you look out, uh, you know, you might be doing this for another 15 years, right? As you look out in the future, like how is to you helping to solve some of the structural problems that are happening in the higher ed tertiary education world? 
Yeah, I think, you know, again, we have, you know, now a decade plus of experience in this. And I think if you look at the positive outcomes that result from partnering with us, they're clear and they are undeniable for the institution, for faculty and students. It's, you know, an enhanced teaching and learning experience. It's best in class retention rates that, as I think I said earlier, rival or surpass campus-based programs. It's, you know, a very important, both large, but more diverse student body. It's, you know, greater domestic and global reach for the institutional mission and brand. It's the confidence and flexibility that comes from a steady and reliable surplus of revenue. And, you know, simply put, when when students win, universities win, and, and then 2U wins. And that clear alignment of interests among students and our partners and our university partners and 2U as a company is ultimately what makes our purpose-driven sort of business model so compelling and powerful. I think by ultimately aligning those interests and by coming together around one shared goal with our partners, which is, you know, at the end, it's, it's delivering great student outcomes. Not only are we improving lives, but we're transforming the future of higher education for the better. And I know that's a bold statement, but it's true. And we are living it and we are delivering on that. And the nice thing about where we sit today, Paul, is, you know, if we did this interview, you know, six, seven years ago, I wouldn't be able to say that. We wouldn't have enough data. We wouldn't have enough experience. And, you know, today we do. And I think that's what's most important. Uh, yeah. You know, people talk about win-win-win all the time. It's usually nonsense. But it's very easy for me to see that there's a win for the students. So the student who wouldn't be able to do an MBA or the student who wouldn't be able to do it. I think you have a nursing program. The student who wouldn't be able to get access. So you're solving that problem. You're solving I don't know if we start, I'll ask you about the cost problem in a minute, but you're sure, the universities who are under tremendous financial pressure as they get their costs cut from under them by state governments particularly, so you're helping to solve their problem by attracting revenue. So, I mean, uh, it does look like a win for the students, and it doesn't. it's not easy for me to see who's losing. You know, maybe not anybody yet. Maybe not anybody. Hmm. That That's is, right. That is cool. What about costs? And I think I'm like, Cost. Oh, uh, yeah. please ca- carry carry on. Then I'll ask you about costs. No, I was going to say. You know, I, I think going into cost, maybe it's you know our model creates a positive and sustainable alignment of incentives, right? Which I think is important between us and the institutional partner. Because as I said, I mean, we invest five to ten million dollars upfront to launch and grow our programs. And if the students in our partner programs don't graduate at a high percentage, we'd simply go out of business, right? So value received by students the universities and the company is at its greatest when a student walks across the stage of graduation, which is proof that our incentives together are are properly aligned. And I think what's important to note about these programs that a lot of folks don't realize is not only are the admission standards for the online program same as on campus, but in almost all cases, the tuition level is also the same as on campus. Why? Because the students in the online program are given the same rights and responsibilities as those on campus. So if I am enrolled in the Georgetown midwifery program and I live in Texas, I have a Hoya student ID card so that when I'm on campus for either a clinical residency or I am bringing my family to go visit, I can walk into the library, I can go to the bookstore, I can get tickets to an athletic game in the same way that on-campus students would. And that is an incredibly important and powerful sort of piece of all of the programs, which is why this notion of poor quality education, sort of second class, it's something different than on campus, is still there, 
right? It still exists today in this sort of ecosystem, but I, I believe has changed, you know, for the better in a variety of ways uh, over the last several years. I guess we're running out, we're slightly running out of road. I did want to ask you, do you think this will ever find its way into secondary education, into high schools? It doesn't strike me instantly that there's any reason why it wouldn't, but uh, maybe there are some sort of resistance in the system. Is that as certainly that's not part of your strategy now? Can you see it possibly happening at some stage? Like you said, I absolutely. And there's no reason why it wouldn't. I think there's an incredible opportunity as you think about sort of AP courses and sure. college prep courses in high school and r- uh, rural high schools where someone has to work, you know, during the day and they're typically very poor quality with very large geographical catchment areas. I mean, you'd be a huge win for the school board, I think, if they could attract you into partner with them. That's exactly right. Yep. But not in the strategy right now. So you're you're squarely in universities right now. Correct. That's right. Cool. Well, I think we're running out of time. I want to really thank you immensely for your generosity, for spending your time with us. I am going to put links to to you in the course notes. I will also put links to some of to use flagship programs that they offer in, in collaboration with some of the best universities in the world. So you'll have all of that in the show notes. Uh, Andrew, any final words? Any any Anything you'd like to bottom us out with? Other than... Uh... Thank you for the comments you made about your experience and for the work that you do on that front. And thanks for the opportunity to uh, chat today. Thank you. Super. Thanks very much. And here we are running up to the end of 2018. What is going on? Well, finally, my business bestseller, The Science of Organizational Change, is going to get a second edition. Yay. That's thrilling because at 50 bucks a pop, I don't think the book gets the audience that it might otherwise. I've recently joined some classrooms virtually to talk about the book, which is uh, always really great to be invited to join classrooms around the world to talk about the book. And I've just been invited to give a talk in Jamaica, which is somewhere I have never been. So that's going to be fun. Hopefully do that at a time when it's going to make the delta between Colorado weather and Jamaica temperatures will be uh, pleasant, shall we say, sometime in the spring. And I'm also giving a webinar on change management based on the book for the Association of Change Management Professionals. You can find out the details of that webinar on my website. I'm also talking to my kitchen cabinet about what my next book is going to be. I'm probably going to shift gears and write another business book, probably on behavioral change and probably called The Behavioral Revolution. And that's probably going to be what I'm going to do in 2019. And that's going to mean putting my opus, Truth Wars, on hold for back a year. But uh, so be it. And in closing, thank you again for all your wonderful support on Patreon and elsewhere. It means a ton. It costs thousands of dollars to get this show on the air. And everything you can do to help is received immensely gratefully. So thank you for listening. And I'll talk to you in a few weeks. To celebrate the launch of the show, and thank you all for listening, I'm going to be giving away books. Lots and lots of books. All you have to do is leave a review in iTunes. We're going to raffle off a book every single week for 12 weeks. So head on over to paulgibbons.net slash iTunes to get easy-to-follow directions and let me know the title of your review to make sure that you're entered to win. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Think Bigger, Think Better. Great ideas are great. But this isn't gospel. Share your critical thinking in the comments. Where do I disagree? What insights were most powerful? If you got value, don't forget to share the value by sharing the podcast. Finally, 
To get information on book and blog releases and new video content, head over to paulgibbons.net and join the community of thinkers talking about using science and philosophy to make our world a better place.